Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. I am wondering if this tape is going to freeze at any point here, my recording machine. Should be okay. Yeah, yeah. you see it'll it. be fine. See it in yellow knife. Yeah. In October of last year, National Health reporter Kelly Grant and photographer Pat Kane were on a clam digging excursion in Nunavut. They stood on a beach with muddy brown sand under an overcast sky. Let's see, how long have we been out here for now? We've been out here for an hour and a half or so. Yeah. And we've gone from our boat totally floating. Yeah, we're probably, I don't know, like maybe, what, 10, between 5 and 10 feet of water. And now we're pulled closer to the shoreline. And the water's retreated, and now boats are, like, on what looks to be shore. It looks, they're, they're onto the sand underneath it. Everybody's starting to get out of their boats and, yeah. you know, in their long, long plastic gloves with their pails, big boots, and they're hopping over and starting to dig their plants. That's it. We'll see what we can dig out from uh, underneath us here. Right. Let's go give it a go. People crouched in the wet sand, trow in one hand, milk crates or bucket in another, on the lookout for holes formed by clams buried below. I'm, I'm digging about a couple inches from the hole, but I always remember where the hole is, so it's really rocky there. I'll do it a couple times, and I'll follow the hole. And I feel where it is. Do I find it? Some of the clam diggers are Inuit elders who, despite the cold and the damp, find the activity calming. It's very soothing for my health. I got to think about a lot of things that I would normally think about at home when I'm interrupted all the time. Like being outdoors is... Medicine for me. (laughs) Clam digging helps them connect to the land. But not all of Nunavut's elders have the ability to keep that connection. There isn't much in the way of assisted living for seniors in the territory. And as a result, elders who need round-the-clock care often have to move to a facility in Ottawa. Sometimes for the rest of their lives. What are the kinds of things that you're able to do here that you wouldn't get to do in Ottawa? Going out, like, there's businesses that care for elders. They usually take them out boating, clam digging, or just be out on the land, berry picking, because that's what they know, and that's what they crave for, to be out Today on The Decibel, Nunavut's elder care challenges and what you lose when you can't grow old in your own community. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Kelly, you were in Nunavut for the first time this fall, and that's where you met Pipali and Joe Arluktu. Can you tell me how that happened? 
Yeah, so I started off my reporting trip in Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut, and I had made plans to travel to a nearby community called Kimarut, which is where Pipali and Joe live. While I was in Iqaluit, I had this really interesting opportunity to go clam digging with a group of uh, female Inuit elders. And one of the women I met on the boat uh, was the daughter of Joe Arluktu. And she mentioned, well, one of the biggest problems we're facing is that there's so little care for elders, you know, long-term care homes, assisted living facilities. And she mentioned that her dad, who has dementia and diabetes and a few other health issues, that they had been offered a spot at a long-term care home for him, but that that spot was in Ottawa. And so I said, well, I'm planning to fly to Kimroot in a couple of days, and could I meet your father? And uh, she also said, well, if you're going to Kimroot, do you think you could deliver these clams to my dad and stepmom? So on this little twin otter plane that we took from Iqaluit to Kimroot, I actually had sort of a, a plastic ice cream tub full of fresh clams that I took and then delivered to Joe and Peepley. And so when you met Peepley and, and Joe, what were they like? Peepley was quite stoic. Like one thing I really found was that as I traveled around, Speaking with Inuit elders is like, they're very stoic, they're sort of a little bit quiet, and they make the best of things, and they are like not prone to complaint. Uh, But this was one issue that they were willing to talk about, this issue of having to send their elders so far away. So talking with, with people, we talked a bit about sort of what it was like caring for Joe day to day. And, you know, he's in a wheelchair, um, getting him in and out of the tub is a bit of a struggle. Um, He does sort of get up and wander in the evening within the house. And so she's always in bed at night kind of worrying that he's going to wander into the living room and fall. Uh, He's still capable of feeding himself, but they cut up his food. And, you know, it's just in a lot of ways, it's like people anywhere in Canada who face the choice of whether or not to keep trying to care for a loved one at home as it gets more difficult or sending them to a long-term care home. The difference here really, of course, is that for Joe and Peepley and the rest of Joe's extended family, the choice was about whether or not to send him to a place that's 2,000 kilometers away from home. So why is sending Joe to Ottawa then? Why is that the only option for him in order to get care? Well, there are two big reasons. The first is that there is an overall shortage of any either assisted living or continuing care facilities in Nunavut. And then Nunavut does not have anywhere a secure facility for patients with advanced dementia. So there's sort of two reasons why people wind up in this home in Ottawa, which is a place called Embassy West Senior Living. And it's either because they have dementia that is beyond what Nunavut's current facilities have the ability to handle, or because there just are no spaces in the few existing care homes there are within Nunavut. What is it like for elders who do decide to move to Embassy West, and what's the care and their their reality there? So I talked to several families who had um, loved ones who were living at this home called Embassy West. And the overwhelming thing I heard was that the elders who had moved there were lonely and homesick, Mm. that they really ached for their grandchildren, for their children, for their great-grandchildren. I didn't hear a lot of people suggesting that this particular home, you know, didn't provide good care. They really do seem to have made an effort to try to 
welcome and serve these Inuit patients as well as they can. Um, they do have translators on site. They bring in frozen country food. Uh, country food is the sort of um, food that Inuit uh, tend to hunt and catch on their own and eat raw. So, you know, whale blubber and caribou. And mm. as I found when I was out clam digging, um, clams and, you know, seal, um, all kinds of food that they are able to catch on the land and then prepare in a traditional fashion. So when I was speaking with Peepley, you know, the way she tried to describe the importance of country food to me was, you know, imagine what your parents or grandparents ate as kids and then grew up on, and then they had to move to a place where it was very hard to get that kind of food. First and foremost, the thing about Ottawa, the Embassy West, um, you know, like, you're white and we're Inuit. Mm -hmm. um, say your grandma, she would be used to the southern way of life and food, mm -hmm. right? But here, us, our elders, we rely on our own food, our own resources of food from out on the land. This home, Embassy West, says they, they do make an effort and they say they do, when the public health rules allow it, that they do have a country food lunch for their Inuit elders every day. Uh, but anyway, it is one of the things that I did hear from a lot of people that they worry that elders will miss when down in Ottawa. Can you just tell us a bit about, I guess, the place of elders in Inuit culture? Um, elders are important in a lot of cultures, but I'm, I'm wondering in, in particular what you learned when you were up in Nunavut. Um, and I guess by extension, how important it would be to have elders in the community. I really don't think I can overstate the important role they play in Inuit culture. One of the things that really amazed me most when I was speaking to people on this reporting trip was that the history is so close and so recent in these communities. I mean, I spoke to several elders who were born on the land in outpost camps who grew up really living a lifestyle that's entirely different from the one they live today. And these elders are a living connection to that past. So what then is lost when elders have to leave the community? So there's something really amazing about being able to speak and spend time with a grandparent or a great-grandparent who actually lived the history that forms sort of who you are as a community, right? You know, this isn't history that's been passed down from people who lived a traditional Inuit lifestyle five or six generations ago. This is parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who lived that in their own youth and can pass those ways and those stories and those teachings down to the younger generations. And some of that is lost when you can't spend time with those elders. It seems understandable that elders would, would feel homesick if they're moving to Ottawa and living so far from home and so far from their family. I guess, could this issue be partially solved, though, with, with more visits from family members? So right now, the government of Nunavut pays for two visits a year for one family member for up to a week. So the government does recognize that it needs to help bring family members down to see their relatives at Embassy West. 
But I think an important thing to understand is just how large a lot of Inuit families are. They tend to have a fair number of children. They are multi-generational. There is a lot of custom adoption. So a lot of their families are big and sprawling. And, you know, two tickets a year for one person at a time, it, it really doesn't mean getting to see your family all that often. The way that we're describing this process here of, of having, you know, little to no choice, if you need care of having to leave your family, your community, your home, it seems to echo a little bit about how Nunavut residents were sent south to be treated for tuberculosis uh, in the mid part of the 20th century there. Yeah, that's a really important bit of history to understand. So in the 40s, 50s and 60s, there was a huge tuberculosis problem among Inuit, not just in what is today Nunavut, but really across the Arctic and at the time, the treatment for TB was generally taking people to, to sanatoria in the south. There were big ones in Hamilton, some in southern Manitoba. So people who were taken away on these ships were often gone for years at a time. Sometimes they died in the south and the communication was very poor so that the federal government didn't do a good job of letting families know what had happened to their loved ones. Um, there were incidents of people being sent back to the wrong communities. Yeah. So one of the women I spoke with in Kimarut, uh, her name is Jeannie Padluck, she really described what it was like for her as a child when her parents were sent out for TB treatment sort of multiple times. And she described to me going with her younger siblings from house to house in Kimarut looking for help because, you know, they were kids and their parents had been taken away for years at a time. From time to time, they would leave. Um, for a while, mm-hmm. she remembers she was eight at the time, eight years old. They would leave from time to time over and over again every year for a few years at least or a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So that history is something that is uh, is very much in people's memories there. And, you know, for understandable reasons, they're not super crazy about moving south for medical care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's dig into why there is a, a lack of elder care in Nunavut. During your, your reporting there, what are some of the reasons that you discovered that the situation is, is the way that it is right now? So there are a couple of big factors that apply to the delivery of health care across the Arctic. One is that infrastructure is very expensive. The construction season is very short. Everything has to be brought up on a sea lift. So building anything in the north is expensive. Another issue is healthcare staffing, which is a perpetual problem in the North and has become more difficult with the pandemic. So there are these underlying structural problems, but there is also a lack of action and a lack of decision making on the part of the territorial government. Now, the last government was behind a plan to build three regional long-term care centers One in Cambridge Bay, one in Rankin Inlet, and one in Iqaluit. Would that meet the need of people living there? It would certainly be an improvement from what exists now in Nunavut. Um, I mean, more beds, I think, would be a very good thing within the territory. However, there's a really big movement pushing against that model of large regional centers in favor of having at least a small home in every community. So it was a big issue in the October election. Um, There was a large petition that was distributed among all of the communities and got lots of support. And what those folks were calling for is 
a way for elders to stay within their own communities. These are all fly-in communities, right? Mm -hmm. So coming and going is expensive and difficult. So for some people, the idea of having to fly to Rankin Inlet or Cambridge Bay or Iqaluit, I think it's certainly an improvement over having to travel all the way to Ottawa to see a loved one, but it isn't the same as having them in your own community. You mentioned infrastructure at the beginning there, Kelly. How much would all of this cost, though? So it's hard to say in terms of putting a firm price tag on it. But one thing I did find and I think is important to explain is that it was cheaper for them to send elders south to Ottawa than it is to care for them in their own territory, at least as they at least as they are doing things now. That's kind of hard to wrap your head around that it's cheaper to send people to Ottawa to pay for visits twice a year by family members than to actually keep people in the territory. That's astonishing. Yeah, so now I'm, yeah, so the numbers <laughs> I'm talking about are specifically about the operational cost of the bed. So not necessarily including the family member visits, but um, the existing homes that they do have. So there's one in Cambridge Bay, for example, where they pegged the operating cost of a bed at that home at about $325,000 a year. Whereas paying to send elders to Embassy West in Ottawa was just under $200,000 per year for the operating cost of the bed. And when you stop and think about that, it actually does make sense just because of how expensive it is to deliver services in the Arctic, right? The wages tend to be a little bit higher because it is so difficult to attract people to work in some of these communities. Supplies are more expensive. Food is more expensive. I mean... It is easier and cheaper to do things in, you know, a big capital city like Ottawa than it is in a small remote community. Now, I guess the question then is, like, what's the trade-off here, right? I mean, this is a lot to ask of people to move so far away from their homes. What do people in Nunavut then say they, they want in terms of elder care? I think there's an understanding that, you know, perhaps you're not going to get a high level secure dementia ward in every community, but might it be possible to add, you know, a couple of beds to an existing facility and then, you know, hire a few more nurses in PSW so that you could at least provide some assisted living. Um, I think the, the, the most important thing is that they would like wherever possible their elders to have a choice to stay home. I think really more than anything else. Um, the organizers of this petition were well aware of that being a stumbling block and say that there really has to be a, a concerted effort to train people locally to someday fill those jobs. And are there options for, for home care? And is that something that is, I guess, being discussed? Just to, to bring it back to, to Joe, is, is that an option? If he doesn't go south, is there an option for him to get some kind of assistance in his home? Well, that is what he's getting now. Uh, twice a week, uh, the nurse comes here and gives him an exercise. Uh, they check his heart. Yeah, they just do a full exam on him and they give him um, an exercise. There is some home care in Nunavut and there is a a sort of push on to try to make that more widely available. Um, but beyond that, um, everything really does fall to the family. And, you know, just like family members anywhere in Canada, you know, people have jobs, they have to go to work every day, it can be difficult for, you know, an older spouse who 
you know, may have health problems of their own to be the main caregivers for somebody. So, you know, in a lot of ways, their challenges are just like the challenges of any family anywhere in Canada who's trying to decide whether they are capable of providing most of the care or having to send, you know, a senior citizen into assisted living or long-term care. Just the difference here is that, you know, if I ever have to make that choice about my parents, I can probably find a home for them in Toronto where I can visit them three times a week. I don't have to send them 2,000 kilometers away. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to, to help us understand this. Thanks again. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.